This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Welcome to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. This is Mike Lord, your host. This is Ellie. This is Simon. This is Stacy And Tom. And we're doing a special episode today talking about tribute bands, because the tribute band is actually a big part of the kind of the culture of being a Genesis fan, that there are a lot of these acts around, you know, based all over the world, you know, where these musicians get together to perform the music of Genesis. And so because of that, we have some interviews with musicians who have been members of these tribute bands, talking about their own experiences with that. And we're going to talk about, you know, our interaction with, you know, going to tribute bands, what we kind of think about, the whole culture in general, whatever we feel like talking about, the good ones we've seen, you know, the things that we like about them. And we encourage you all to kind of respond to this with your own comments on our Facebook page, on our website, so that we can kind of talk about your own input to this at some point. So with that, we're going to jump into some interviews. Mike and I got the chance to sit down with Adam Cromelo. Um, I'll explain a little about his background. He's originally from the north suburbs of Chicago. Uh, he grew up listening to all kinds of music and fostered a love for playing piano at an early age. When he was 18, Adam moved to New York City to study at the Manhattan School of Music, and he graduated in 2011. Adam's progressive rock jazz trio, Crom, has released two albums. His compositions have appeared on NPR and the Ride Channel, and he's been touring as the keyboardist for Columbia Records pop singer Phoebe Ryan. But most importantly, at least for our sakes, <laughs> Adam, along with his fellow School of Music alum Angelo DiLoretto, founded the Genesis Piano Project, which features the duo performing the band's classic material on two grand pianos. They have toured Europe twice, selling out theaters and concert halls, and in 2015, they released their first EP live in Italy. The Genesis Piano Project will return to Europe for their third tour in the fall of 2016. So here's our little meeting with Adam. talking with Adam Cromwell, who is a young pianist, composer, jazz musician, who loves Genesis also. 
And so Tom and I are here. Say hi, Tom. Hello, guys. And uh, Adam, say hi. Hello. And we're here to uh, talk to him about his love of Genesis, his Genesis piano project that he's done, his own music, own musical career, and we'll move forward in that direction. So, Tom, I'll throw it to you for the first question. All right. Well, first, it's great to finally sit down with you. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you guys are here. One thing that I think Genesis fans notice is that when they look around at other Genesis fans, the median <laughs> age is, is pretty high, probably in the 40s <laughs> or 50s. So whenever we see someone who is of the younger set and into Genesis, it's really like, wow, how cool is that? Like, I wonder how they got into Genesis. And I think maybe you haven't, weren't even born when Invisible Touch came out. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not born yet. So Three we were wondering, like, how, how did Genesis come across your path and, and what led you into becoming such a fan of this band? Um, well, I think like most Genesis fans who are my age, it came from my parents. Uh, specifically, actually, my dad and my uncle. And so I remember as young as like five or six years old being around the house and my dad would be working at his desk, which was like in an open landing area on our second floor right by my bedroom. I'd hear Watcher of the Skies <laughs> coming in, you know. And I remember specifically around that age, maybe a few years later, in grade school, he was driving me to school every morning and he had nursery crime in the car and the musical box was playing and it got to that middle section, the big heavy section, and I thought it was the coolest thing. And so I started asking him about it. He was telling me about Genesis. Uh, soon after that, he, he replaced Nursery Crime with Selling England in the car, and the cinema show was the one that, that had me absolutely floored. Um, and from there on, I just asked him for all of the Genesis CDs, and I went and would just listen CD by CD for like a good week or two at a time uh, on my little stereo in my bedroom, and I totally absorbed all of the... Prague years, like up to 76 probably, that was what my dad had, and then it was later on my own when I was older, teenage years, high school years, that I discovered the later stuff, um, which my dad wasn't as much into, and so I just had to go buy it and find it for myself, yeah. Coolest dad ever. <laughs> yeah, right. So, talking about you being kind of a professional musician, you're working, you know, on your own music, you play with other musicians, you went to... Uh, Enhanced School of Music. Enhanced yeah. School of Music. When you listen to Genesis now as kind of a professional, what is it that stands out for you about their music? What is it that, as a musician, draws you into the music? Uh, that's a great question because the answer totally evolves as mm -hmm. I change as a musician. Um, but I should also say that even knowing what I know now about music and having studied it very in depth, mm -hmm. there are still moments where it just wows me on the same level it wows anyone. I'm not thinking analytically uh, about what's happening. I'm just totally enjoying it because it just rules. Right. <laughs> um, but I think because I was a piano player, um, all the pianistic qualities that Tony brought were the mm -hmm. first things that I really noticed and appreciated on a musical level. The thing that still gets me the most is um, it's called harmonic rhythm, and it means when the, it's the speed that the chords move and change. Okay. Most songs have a very simple form, you know, verse chorus type of thing where the, there's a chord progression that just repeats through that section. But with Tony, um, there's moments where every single beat is a different chord, and he won't recycle a chord for like 17 beats. Mm. Some odd number, but it just fits with the, the lyrics, and it fits with the form, and it feels so natural. I don't know many other bands that really do that. I think the Beatles were really good at that, too. And I know Tony was a big Beatles fan. Um, 
but I think that's still the thing as a pianist that is the most impressive to me. Um, and the other thing is really the teamwork. Like as a band, people always talk about who the favorites are and you know uh, who the like unsung heroes are or whatever. But the truth is, it's a total five-way endeavor. Right. And like from Gabriel's like unbelievable singing and character playing and the the rhythmic aspect that Phil brought, which you can hear the incredible difference between Trespass and, and Nursery Crime. Um, Hackett, I thought, was so good at finding counter melodies within Tony's chords, these little single note lines that fall under what what else is happening that's so beautiful. And Mike just rocks. Like, really, it wouldn't yeah. be... They found a way to evolve and make amazing music that had the same character as members left, but it's still this team effort. All right, so growing up with Genesis in the background, in the car, and you know, becoming a skilled piano player, how did the Genesis Piano Project come about, and how did you team up with Angelo DiLoretto and actually, from what I understand, turn him into a Genesis fan? Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I converted him. I mean, not that he was a non-Genesis fan before, he just didn't know about their old music, their, their 70s music. So we met as classmates at the Manhattan School of Music. We were both jazz piano performance majors. Mm -hmm. um, and I always considered myself a rock musician first and a jazz musician second. Um, it was just that rock isn't really something to study in college like jazz is, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I was majoring in jazz. And Angelo was a similar um, type of musician. He loved rock music. We both loved classical music too and played a lot of classical. We just kind of came from the same place. And so we were talking about uh, a lot of our shared favorite artists, like a lot of 70s bands, The Police, Sting, um, Pat Metheny, who's crossover kind of prog and, and jazz. And once he told me he loved Pat Metheny, I said, you know, I think you'd like old Genesis. And he knew, his parents are a little younger than my parents. He knew some of the 80s hits. He knew Tonight, Tonight, Tonight and Invisible sure. Touch, which are also great songs. He didn't know the early stuff. So I, I kind of, I felt like a lecturer. Like I was giving him the Genesis crash course. We'd meet in my dorm room every night and I'd pick up two or three songs and we'd sit and really listen and analyze and I'm sure I was so annoying because I, I wouldn't shut up during the songs, <laughs> but I'd always be like, oh, th the theme comes back here, but in this instrument, or, you know, and, uh, and he like was loving it so much right off the bat. And he had the idea to jam on the songs and arrange them for two pianos because how else were we going to play the stuff together, you know? And um, we put on a recital at the Manhattan School of Music and it was, I mean, it was our first one and we really, we weren't even called the Genesis Piano Project. It was just Adam and Angelo playing Genesis for fun. <laughs> And then it turned out to be so much fun and so rewarding, and people really liked it. We decided to do another concert. Um, we filmed it and put it on YouTube, and from there, uh, we were getting a lot of wonderful feedback, and we kind of, we, we were getting concert offers, you know, without a booking agent or anything, just concert offers um, to go to other uh, piano kind of galleries throughout the, the East Coast and Midwest and perform. And soon we got offers to go to Europe and play real theaters and things, and it just turned into an actual project that the two of us have as part of our touring musical career. Does it make you think about the music any differently when, when you have to think about how are we going to perform this in front of a crowd? How is this going to come across? Um, it just makes me love the music more. It's honestly been a total dream come true. Mm -hmm. I'm not the type of person that would ever want to be in a cover band. Um, maybe for like a week or something it would be mm -hmm. wonderful to just you know, feel what it was like to play the real arrangements of Genesis. But I always like to play original music, and if it's not original, then to do something of my own with someone else's music. So this is the perfect way to have 
Genesis be a part of my professional life and still feel like I have some ownership over what we're doing. Um, and to go to Europe and play for a bunch of middle-aged Italian <laughs> guys who have listened to Genesis their whole life and they're crying and we're kind of crying while we're playing and everyone, like it's been a truly incredible experience and talking with people after and hearing their stories. Um, you know, they were young and they went and saw Genesis when they did the Lamb tour and the album hadn't come out yet and they hadn't heard the album yet and they didn't know any of the music. And like, uh, we were in Portugal and they told us the story where in um, Lisbon there was some sort of civil conflict happening and there was army, like, you know, just guards like surrounding the uh, venue and people were like trying to break windows and get in <laughs> and the musical box played there and they reenacted that <laughs> they had they arrested someone during the show like they did in, in the 70s right. crazy so I love learning about Genesis history right. and, and people's unique experiences in that way um, and to answer your question about uh, seeing the music differently I would just say that when we sit and learn the songs um, for example, with Seven Stones, it's a song I'd listened to a million times, never really sat down and tried to play. We wanted to do an arrangement of it, and when we sat and, and learned the song by ear and figured out who was gonna do what and how we would make it work for two pianos, we kind of both were just floored at what was really happening um, in the inner workings of the song. Things that you think sound so simple, and then when you really look into what's happening, it's there's so much there that you just kind of hear without even noticing, which is how it's supposed to be, all these pieces of the puzzle fitting together perfectly. Um, so it makes me discover parts of, of these songs that I would never have discovered otherwise. And our hope is that people also discover these parts of the songs by hearing it in a different way, being arranged on two pianos as opposed to, you know, the way they did it. Right. And, and you have released an EP yeah. from the Genesis Piano Project. and. It's strange to call it an EP because it's actually longer than I think Nursery Crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's five songs that were were recorded in it, in Italy. Yeah, at and a concert. How did you choose those five songs to be part of the EP? It was a mix between which ones we got the best take of because this was this was just one concert, so there's not any edits. Um, so there's there's a few mistakes and things you know, but um, so it was takes that we were proud of and also songs that we felt just had to be. Um, on the, you know, we, we do a, a version of the cinema show that we're very proud of. It's kind of a showstopper. We always end our first set with it. We had to have that on there. So there was added pressure to nail the cinema show that night. And then it was, you know, we wanted to have a mix of um, songs with higher energy and lower energy. Um, so it felt like a, a natural arc. And it is, it's longer than either of the albums I've released with my own band, you know. But it, we called it an EP because it's only five songs and we probably did like 13 that night. Yeah. I figured Trespass only had six songs. Right. <laughs> right. That would have been an EP, maybe, if that was a thing maybe. back then, yeah. What's on the horizon for that project? Right. So we are um, going to tour Europe again. Okay. We're planning on being in Spain, Portugal, Italy, and hopefully the UK this time. Oh, That'll be in the fall, uh, late October, early November. Okay. Um, as for the States, we're, we definitely want to do as much as we can but we're not really doing the piano galleries anymore, so we're working on it. It's, it's slower here than it is in Europe, but we're hoping that it'll catch up. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted on okay. all that, but right now it's just Europe. Uh, Adam, you said that you put out some of your own albums already. Can you talk about some of the music that you do within your jazz trio that you have? Sure. Um, 
It's funny you call it a jazz trio. <laughs> well, but I felt very hip saying that. Right. So. Um, He's like, but you're wrong. But but it's absolutely not. No, it, it's the instrumentation of a jazz right, trio. It's, sure. it's upright bass, piano, and drum set. Um, but the music, I, I call it progressive rock for the jazz piano trio because um, it's very much inspired by Genesis and also inspired by more um, contemporary kind of pop music, soundtrack kind of music. It's instrumental, but they're, they're songs. And the improv is a part of it, but it's not the bulk of it like it is with traditional jazz. Um, but we definitely do improvise, which is how our, our jazz roots kind of come into it. Um, the band's called Crom. Uh, it's just the first four letters of my last name. And we do have two albums out. One was um, released uh, by ourselves, not on a label, called, and it's self-titled Crom. It's on Spotify and iTunes. Um, and our first album, we weren't called Crom yet, we were just the Adam Cromolo Trio. That album was called Young Blood, and it was released on a label called Zoho Records, also on iTunes and, and um, Spotify. And I'm really proud of both of them. We have a third album's worth of material. Um, we're, we were planning on recording it, uh, but the drummer and I have been touring with a, a pop singer oh, yes. <laughs> that's been really busy. Um, so that kind of took some precedence. Mm -hmm. But once that slows down, we'll get in the studio and record the third Crown Can album. Can you talk about some of that work, too, that you do? Because that really is, you seem to have a very diverse portfolio yeah. now of doing your own music with the, with your progressive rock trio, jazz trio. Right. <laughs> and, the, yeah. and the Genesis music with the two pianos, and then a very mainstream kind of backing of a pop singer as, as the backing band. Right. So kind of what's, what is that like, kind of being part of that world for yourself? Um, it's really fun. Right. It's You would never guess, if you were in Italy and you saw the Genesis Piano Project, mm -hmm. you would never guess that I also play um, synths behind this girl. Her name's Phoebe Ryan. She signed to Columbia Records. She's awesome. I happen to be a fan of this kind of music. I know a lot of Genesis fans maybe aren't so into Top 40. And um, and, there, and there's bad stuff and good stuff Sorry, in any genre. Like in anything. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's horrible jazz out there, especially as there's great jazz. And, um, and so uh, I really enjoy it. My favorite part is because I, I get to have these electric keyboards that are hooked in through the computer, which is what... Tony would have done if they had that <laughs> software at the time. So I, I'm in command of all these sounds, mm -hmm. and while the parts are a lot simpler than what I normally play, and they're not pianistically challenging, mm -hmm. I'm designing the sounds and doing the samples and doing a lot of stuff mm -hmm. um, that prog keyboardists used to do. And so I really enjoy that aspect. I enjoy being a keyboard player and having all these sounds, and, and I also enjoy being in the background and not not having the spotlight. and There's just Less pressure. Less pressure, and also it's a fun... Um, it's kind of like in the Genesis Piano Project, we have our moments where we get to do the solos, and then we have the moments where we're just doing the background part, whatever the rhythm, guitar, or bass, yeah. or drums. And sometimes that's more fun because you get to like fill out the track. You get mm -hmm. to be all the music that is almost felt more than heard. Right. And it, that is really fun. Yeah. <laughs> right now we're with Adam at the piano, and he's going to talk about some different pieces that he has loved playing, that he has found as a bit of a challenge, and also some things that he discovered about the pieces that... Uh, you normally wouldn't hear, but when you're breaking them down to play for two pianos, you kind of find things out about. So let's start with that one, the last one. Like when you're breaking it down, what were some things that you found out? You're like, oh my gosh, this is what this song is really comprised of. Um, the first one that comes to my mind right away is the Lamia. Um, there's the section kind of uh, at the end of what you might consider the chorus. Um, 
where Gabriel's going, Rail, welcome, we are the Lamia. Normally that part feels, the melody that Gabriel sings is very, it's a beautiful melody, but it's not very angular or weird. You wouldn't suspect that there's crazy chords under it. The hmm. melody is, is normal. Right? Um, but when we were learning the chords, we discovered that it was one of those moments where Tony has got a different chord every beat for so long, and he follows an exact pattern. Okay. They're all minor chords, and they, they sound like this, just going down in the same order. Yeah, yeah. I can hear it, yeah. So, um, and then... Inside of that, Hackett wrote this counter melody that's so gorgeous um, that fits in those chords beautifully. And what he did was basically this. And then the next part even has more chords and his line is, is beautiful. Tony has this Debussy-esque, which is so fun to play, one of my favorite moments. What are some of the examples of things that, that for you are those moments of music and vocals really just fitting together perfectly? Is there anything that comes to mind that you guys play? Uh, it's funny, maybe not that we play, one of the ones where I think the, the way Peter sings and the melody and the lyrics is so perfect is the chamber with 32 doors. Oh, okay. That's my favorite Gabriel performance in Genesis, okay. weirdly. Yeah. He, I feel like he's acting. There's a lot of angst mm. and emotion, um, especially the very end where he's just got the duo with, with Tony's chords. Mm -hmm. um, like the very end, yeah. up until, take me away. Um, I love that moment. I'm trying to think for us, I really love the lyrics of Ripples. Oh, sure. Um, and I love the melody, especially of the chorus and the way Phil sings about it. Mm -hmm. And it's a special one for me too, because the song's about the passage of time. And I kind of, every time we're playing it, I think about like being nine years old and listening to that song in my bedroom, sure. and now we're here playing it. And it really is one of their most beautiful songs. Okay. The, we're, the, the thing we're most nervous about is having a, like a brain fart. Right. And, and, and it happens on every show at right. some point. Sometimes, most of the time, in a little moment where you might not notice or we could fake it and get mm -hmm. by maybe a melody note or mm -hmm. something. For some reason, the middle section of Ripples, all these chords, because the pattern changes sometimes and, and sure. it's, it's, it's not as simple of a cycle to remember. So, you know, sometimes it's... And sometimes it's... So it's right. often we'll forget. Right. How many times have we done that section? Oh, right. Okay. And if you daydream for a second, which has totally happened, yeah. um, then I, I often like, yeah. you know, I'll look up it and, and be like, A major. Like which one? Like, <laughs> give me a am, song. I, am I going up at the end of this or down at the end? Of yeah. This? Oh, right. Exactly. So, uh, coming up, where can people reach and find out about you? Oh, uh, definitely our Facebook page is what we're most active on. So um, Genesis Piano Project. Genesis Piano Project. Yeah, you can type facebook.com slash Genesis yeah. Piano Project or just type us into the search bar. And we post about all of our gigs, all of our videos. Um, you can do youtube.com slash Genesis Piano yeah. Project. 
Uh, right now, we have plans to make our, our first debut album. We have a producer. He's the guy who books our shows in Italy. Mm-hmm. He works for Real World Records, Peter oh. Gabriel's label. Right. Uh, we wouldn't release an album on Real World, probably. Right. But um, he he doesn't only work for them, but that's one right. of the things he does. Mm-hmm. That's coming up. Um, okay. We'll probably do it sooner rather than later. And we post about all of our shows. Okay. Again, we'll be in Europe you know, mm-hmm. in uh, the fall, hopefully the U.S. sometime okay. before then, too. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Adam, again, thank you for giving us your time today. Oh, this thank you guys great. for coming. It was yeah. so great to see you guys. And hopefully we'll get you to come to a full episode of the podcast so you can kind of talk about, we can actually kind of have you as part of the group at some I would point. love to. We'll have some special guests at different times. Yeah, that'd so. be great. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thanks. I managed to catch up with uh, Matt Brown, who used to be the keyboard player in the tribute band Gabble Ratchet, who operated, I think, was it out of California? It was out of California, and one of the things I, b- I love about the kind of Prague family world is that I met Matt back in 98 or 99 when he was performing, I think, with Cinema Show. They, they had some mix with Supernatural Anesthetists, and then Gabble Ratchet formed, and then you happen to meet up with him and become friends with him as well. So it's yeah, quite of, separately, yeah. yeah. Quite, quite separately. So it's it's kind of, kind of this kismet that's come together. It's a small world. Small right? world. And in addition to uh, to Matt's tribute work, he actually also works uh, in, a, in a fabulous band called Heliopolis, who, again, operates out of, uh, I think it's L.A. Uh, we took this interview actually uh, quite a while ago. It was at uh, the Rites of Spring Festival in uh, Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. And I managed to lure him back to my hotel room with some very short skirts and oh, some high heels, um, and uh, and really sort of you know ask him exactly how uh, how things happened with him as as a tribute artist as part of a tribute band. We're here with uh, Matt Brown of Heliopolis, um, a, a fantastic keyboard player and a good guy to boot. Um, oh sure. <laughs> <laughs> now the reason we're uh, we're speaking specifically to Matt is in one of uh, Matt's past incarnations, he was actually the keyboard player in a Genesis tribute act. Um, and what was the name of the, of the act? Well, to be honest, I actually was in a couple of different ones. Gabble Ratchet, you know, obviously taken out of the the parentheses under Supper's Ready, right? Yes. Um, was the one that that I was in the longest, and uh, I think because of what we tried to do got a little bit more attention uh, in the Los Angeles area. Before that, um, there had been a band that had multiple names. It eventually settled on the name Cinema Show. That was the first band that I was with. At the time, they were called Supernatural Anesthetists. And uh, <laughs> they had uh, a wonderful gentleman who's no longer with us named Sean Guerin. Yeah. Um, 
whose dad was a dynamite session drummer, played with Joni Mitchell and Frank Zappa and Thelonious Monk. And, wow. And Sean was a guy who sang like Peter and played drums like Phil, and it was scary. We'll get wow. into that later. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me just take you back a step. Okay. And, um, what's the genesis mm. of your love of Genesis? <laughs> <laughs> I was telling somebody this earlier. Um, when I was nine... I heard two Genesis songs pretty much within a couple of weeks of one another, either from AM radio then swapping to FM radio. And the first one was Misunderstanding, of course, but the second one was The Lamb I Sent on Broadway. The actual title track? Yes. Okay. And a nine-year-old hearing those two songs back to back going, wait a minute, that's the same band? Somewhere along the line, maybe somebody's older brother or something said, oh, you know, yeah, you know, Abacab is really good. And, uh, all these things like, well, maybe we should start collecting the old records. Um, Genesis played the Forum in October of 1986. And the night before the gig, we had a local radio station that used to do a radio program where they play seven albums on Sunday. And Joe Benson was the guy who was the DJ, and he's written a lot of books, and he's known as Uncle Joe out west. He uh, played seven Genesis records. Actually, he played five because two of them were doubles, but we won't talk about that. <laughs> and he played The Lamb in its entirety, and he played Selling England, and I think a couple others. I only remember those last two because they were just so unusual for a kid raised on 1980 and up. You yeah, know? yeah. And I remember taping them because at the time, you know, CDs were expensive. And, and then I went to the gig, and I don't know, DNA rearranging might be a good... <laughs> A good adjective for it, and it was the first leg where they were still doing Circus Ready in the in the in the. Oh medley. wow! Yes, of course. So there's people all around me losing their minds. This shit is amazing, but what? Who, what is it? You know, I had no idea. <laughs> that was the thing that did it, and it was one of those things where um, I got the lamb on my birthday, and at the time it was only available as an import. It was stupidly expensive. I put the thing on, and after hearing it on the radio, and thinking. This is really bizarre and weird, but I'm drawn to it in a way that I can't really explain. So I just kept going back. And I think maybe on the third listen, the whole thing just clicked. And I think I didn't listen to anything else for about two months. What was it that prompted you to think I could be in a band that could pay tribute to this music? That kind of was a random thing. And I started playing keys when I was seven. And uh, basically anytime I got into any band, I started learning how to play their stuff, or parts of it. One way or another, I just tried to pick up as many of, the, of those parts as I could. And I learned the guitar parts on keys too, because I didn't know any guitar players. The ones that I knew all were into either the shred thing, yeah. or they were into U2, and I love U2 also, so that was no big thing. But you know, I, there was nobody around me who was a musician or an aspiring musician that dug the progressive thing. Right. And so I thought, well, fine, you know, I'll just, I'll just learn how to play it all myself and it'll be a fun experiment. Yeah, yeah. So flash forward to 1999, I think, and I got a Roland JP 8000, which already almost had some of the sounds on it. Really damn close. Like the Banks RMI lamb sound was almost there and some of the patches of the synth solos were just 
okay, if we tweak that, you know, it yeah, might yeah. sound almost authentic. <laughs> and so I just thought, well, what the hell, you know, I'll just do that for me and I'll use those sounds on my demos. There was a, a band in town called Supernatural Anesthetists and we'd gone to see them a couple times. And they were really good. They mostly covered the seconds out period. They pretty much played that album, you know. And they ended up having a gig that we were going to go to, but their keyboardist had thrown his back out mm-hmm. and they were going to cancel. And I'm in the kitchen with my wife and we're just cleaning dishes and got this, apparently I had this look in my eye and she says, I know what you're thinking. I said, yeah? What am I thinking? She said, you want to call the club and talk to the guys about sitting in, don't you? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so I call the club and I get Sean Garrett on the phone and I said, look, you don't know me from Adam, but I know most of your set list and would you be at all interested in just like having a jam down there and he goes um you know our one of our drummers just also backed out because of our keyboardist you know not being able to do it but give me your number because you never know what might happen so i fell into it just just by that i mean one thing kind of led to another actually the sean started a peter gabriel tribute and that was how i first started working with him it was this band called so it was a, it was a fantastic band um we'd covered a lot of stuff mostly from so and security in the third album yeah. but it was a blast um and through that association we just stayed in touch and within a few months the keyboard slot was open in supernaturals and then i joined them and that was that was the beginning of it all really so how did it evolve into cinema show i mean what was the it was a lot of it had to do with we were tired of people mispronouncing it when they'd announce us. <laughs> it's amazing how prosaic some of the big decisions are. Yeah, it's, it, was, it really was down to that. Well, that actually brings me around to another question. question. How, how do you choose a set? That's a really, really good question. Um, especially when you have a fan base like theirs and you know that there are plenty of factions and yeah yeah and there are people there are weird people like us who like all of it and you know it's <laughs> maybe we're not that weird i don't know but uh yeah you, when you get the whole thing about people taking sides and all that mostly my recollection of that was that we mostly did it to please ourselves and i'm i'm gathering that that's how the group started as well mm-hmm. when they chose what they were going to pick i mean the group went from doing mostly, you know, the trick of the tailwind and weathering tour material. Yeah. And then started to add some other stuff. And when I got involved, but you know, anytime somebody new would come along, the questions would be like, well, you know, is there anything that we're not doing that maybe we should be doing? So that started to expand things. But there were plenty of times when there was a lot of heated discussion about how far to widen that scope yeah and a lot of times it depended on where the gig was yeah it depended on who we thought might show up mm-hmm. I mean you know one of the things that happened during the gavel days was we got booked to play in a casino up in Edmonton Alberta and the promoter did specifically say that because they knew that that group played the whole catalog but we did concentrate on one or two particular areas they did specifically say you know can you play more of the fm stuff okay and we said okay so we brushed up on a few that we hadn't done in a while and we just tailor made the set for those two gigs to be a little more 
you know, a little more uh, 80s centric, you know, yes, or at least yes. more familiar centric. Um, it was always a problem with trying to represent the whole catalog. It was always an issue. Um, and even though I loved it, I always was usually the guy going, you know, the audience that keeps coming back really doesn't want to hear anything after 77, except maybe a handful of songs. You know, you get five people who yeah. all have slightly different takes on that argument. So it made for some rather lively discussion. <laughs> <laughs> I like playing all the all the, the stuff that's more focused on rhythm. And we had we had a great drummer named Scott Connor who ended up playing with uh, Billy Sherwood and, and Circa and some okay, of those guys. Yeah. And, um, and we had a great bass player whose name was Jim Wilson. And, um, they loved the Duke tour and the Abacab tour and Three Sides Live tour. I mean, I, I, thought, I thought my head was going to be ripped off the first time I heard the Cage medley on Three Sides Live. I never heard anything like that. And so we were like, well, we got to play some of that stuff. It grooves too hard, man. It needs to be yeah. in the set. What do you mean you don't like it? It's it's slamming. What's your problem? You know, that's, these are the these are the discussions that would happen behind the scenes. You know, it also, I suppose it also depends on the kind of tribute act you, you want to be because you get bands like the Musical Box who take a very forensic yes. attitude towards. What a um, great word to and, use for that. You know, and it is an experience. You know, they will focus on one tour. And they will they will give you that experience really. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. No, no, no. I was just I was just curious as to you know what your take is on um, the tribute act that 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 chooses to focus on one area. I mean, some at some tribute acts say we're there for the music, so they won't they right. won't dress up in the costumes or anything like that. Some I mean, obviously, when you've got the musical box, that's a production. Yes. And as a result, it requires a certain amount of capital outlay, shall we say. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. I was wondering how, how you treated the, um, the spirit of the stagecraft. Oh, that's a good thing. Well, the cool thing about what happened with Supernatural and Cinema Show was, first off, we had two drummers. Mm -hmm. And I, at the time, I didn't really recall too many tribute bands that did the double drummer thing. Sean would primarily come up and sing lead, but then he'd come back and join Scott to do a lot of really cool double drumming stuff. And so there was an element that you didn't always, always find. Yeah. It, yeah. For whatever reason. As far as the costumes were concerned, there were some theatrics that did eventually get worked. I remember, okay, uh, yeah. I remember the bass player's wife uh, at the time, Audrey, well, when Tom was alive, Audrey actually made a flower mask and wow. a Magog head, and you know we had really it was very low budget, but it was really fun. Gabble was fronted by a good friend of mine named David Hussey, who's playing in a band called XNA now. And David, I mean David and I go way back, and I, I'm going to be I'm going to be honest, you know David because he comes from a theater background and more of kind of a semi Broadway background. He didn't sing it like Peter or Phil, and that ruffled a lot of feathers. Really? Um, I mean, and sometimes, I'll, sometimes it ruffled mine, too, you know, but I had to kind of change my perspective on that from time to time. The main thing was that he was a great front person, mm -hmm. had a lot of char charisma, a lot of uh, interaction with the crowd, and he definitely wanted to get into the theatrical part of it. And that did, obviously, dictate some things that were... That yeah, invariably happen. Yeah. 
I think Gabble in the years when David wasn't in it and the years when I wasn't in it, um, pretty much, I mean, it was always about the music. But at that during those times, there wasn't really much attention paid to whether there was going to be any theatrics or not. Yeah. Okay. Well, this actually brings me around to a slightly related question, mm -hmm. um, which is, what do you think it takes to be a tribute artist? Or I mean, what are the advantages of it, and what are the disadvantages of it? <laughs> is it like a set of clothing which you can take off and put back on again, depending on? Hmm. That's a really good question. Well, I think the the main thing that it takes is you have to have passion for that particular artist. That's the first thing. Second thing is you've got to be willing to go into it pretty deep mm. and dissect as much of it as you can. I have a love-hate relationship with that because I'm not really crazy about ruining something's mystique. But let's face it, if you're going to play the music, particularly a band like that, there's a lot of details. And you do have to break it down, you know. I mean, the big thing, I'm sure, with most of the bands, my involvement included, was, oh, for God's sake, which one of those is Hackett and which one of those is Banks? <laughs> which part? You know, since they back in those days, they really wanted to, you know, have the those two tones, the lead synth and Steve's mm -hmm. lead, blend so well, you know. Especially on albums like Nursery Crime. Yes. Trick of the Tail has a lot of that, too. Really? But yeah, I mean, Nursery Crime does. I used to be more of a gearhead <laughs> in terms of remembering what instruments that were being played. I, most of that's lost yeah. now. But, but is, is, that, is that a necessary requirement to be in a tribute band? You need to have that obsessive attention to detail. A lot of people would say yes. I think, I mean, for me, I, I've always believed that you have to be obsessive about the music part first. Yeah. It's probably a really good idea to be as obsessive as you can about the sonic qualities too. Mm -hmm. But I've heard a lot of bands and not just Genesis bands, but other bands that I guess maybe there are different folks that will concentrate heavier on one aspect of the of that puzzle than the other. Yeah. And my attitude has always been I wanted to get the parts down or at least get in the spirit of it as close as possible. But uh, they are both important. Well, that brings me around to another thing. With, with regards to the playing, did you find that there were certain songs which were particularly challenging to learn? Yes. There actually were a few that are still in the ether there. <laughs> um, one of the lineups did Robbery, Assault, and Battery quite a bit. And... I'm, I'm jazz trained and I, I read and I, I score and I couldn't figure that fucking song. <laughs> Save my life, man. What the hell is he doing? You know, I, I mean, that could be a case of, of, your, of your music education getting in the way. I don't know, because a lot of times you're pre-programmed to think about things in of a course, certain fashion. Yeah. And it's hard to throw that aside sometimes, especially when you're creating. But... Um, a lot of it was challenging. The, the biggest thing, I think, as far as playing keys on the stuff was just balancing all the parts. Yeah. I think my biggest thing was I tried to play as many of the parts as possible. Overdubs be damned. Yeah. And that's... Because you do. You have to, when you're in a live thing, you have to make really deliberate choices about, okay, well, there's three keyboard parts in this section... And they're all important. 
Is one of them maybe less essential than the other two? Or do we need to get somebody else to play that part for this five seconds? I mean, you have to ask those questions sometimes if you're going to go that heavy into it. We would get the adrenaline rushing so hard that we wind up playing seconds out tempo. And by the time we got done, I'm on the floor going, did anybody get the license plate on that truck? <laughs> I could need an ambulance over here. Um, writing the scree was a bitch. Um, so there was lots of different things that, that you kind of did feel like, if I conquered that, yeah, you know. We got it. We got it. You know, certain things would definitely have that kind of reaction for sure. Well, to wrap up, I've, I've basically I have one final question for okay. you, which is what have you taken from that? I mean, what have you come out as a musician with from that experience? The main thing would be learning all of it was not just about getting my parts down or getting them as close as possible. When you do something like that, you're also forced to pay attention to how it fits into the whole picture. You know, that was a lesson that some people are lucky to learn in school or if they have a really astute music teacher or a good coach, mm -hmm. you know, where when you're young, you know, you're learning how to play and you're all about your own instrument. And most of the time you're not really paying attention to why what you're doing fits into the rest of the band. Yeah. Hopefully you learn that at some point. That's kind of, I think, a, a, a transcendent place that people eventually get to, you know? The greatest thing about it, I think, for me was I saw how much of Tony's writing and how much of the way they put their music together and how they, and how they arranged a song and how they did the dynamics, how much of it influenced my own writing and how much of it influenced the way I would approach being in an original band. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, one of the things in on the Heliopolis record, um, <laughs> we really tried hard not to borrow from other people. And there were times when we were in rehearsal going, no, dude, that sounds too much like <laughs> revealing science. You've got to change that lick. But there's a moment on the album, it's actually the last... Uh, it's the last few choruses of Love and Inspiration where I just go full fucking Wind and Wuthering. <laughs> I, I'm hearing like, the, to me, the end of that feels like the, the, the All in a Mouse's Night ending. Yes. There's something in, I mean, even the patch that I chose is a complete Tony homage, you know? And I hear that bit and I just like, I get goosebumps. Not necessarily because the bit's any good, because it just reminds me of hearing that music and yeah. cramming the headphones yeah. on my head and just getting lost. You know, it had that. I was trying to grab some of that magic and maybe if I was lucky, get it into an original song, you know? <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you, I mean, you're, you're, <clears throat> with regards to your band Heliopolis, you're one album in now. You're in the, I think you're in the process of writing the second album. Yeah. How is that going? Well, we did premiere one new song at the Rosfest show, and we're trying to do this record a little bit more uh, writing everything in the same room. I mean, mm -hmm. the first album had one completely uh, group-written track. The other four songs were brought in almost complete, but then they all went through a process. Um, where everybody would come up with ideas and then mm -hmm. the songs would invariably get longer. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> they rarely got shorter. Um, what we're trying to do this time really is uh, we're all trying to come in more with bits rather than full songs so that 
you know, I, I know Carrie was saying this earlier too today. You know, I write okay lyrics, but I'm not the lead singer. Mm-hmm. And I've always believed that, like, whoever's singing something, you, they've got to be able to sell it. And how best to sell it than if they wrote it? I mean, they yeah. have to find, yeah. the singer has to find something with which they can connect so that it makes the audience member go, oh my God. That's the goal, right? Yeah, communication. Yeah. So we kind of figured, look, you know, if any of us had any lyric ideas, we would go to Scott and say, "Hey, you know, I'd like to do something that maybe kind of veers off into this topic. I've got a couple of ideas, but you take the wheel." And I think that's really the goal here is we want the rest of the songs on the record to be almost completely group written if possible. Yeah. Changing Seasons is the new song we did and it was predominantly a song that Mike and and uh, and Scott had, but again, you know, everything goes through adaptations and changes. Yes, of course. Yeah. But yeah, that that was the thing. I mean, we really want to make it as much of a of a group hodgepodge yeah. as possible. One of the other things we managed to do was, uh, while I was actually in the UK, we caught up with singer Mike Morton and keyboard player Howard Bowden, um, who are in the UK tribute band, The Book of Genesis. Um, so we managed to uh, to grab them just outside a pub, so there might be a little bit of background noise as revellers pass by, um, to talk a little bit about the, uh, I guess, the English experience, you could sure. call, of, uh, of being in a Genesis tribute act. So here we are, we're actually in the UK as we speak. Um, I'm with uh, Mike Morton and Howard Boda from the Book of Genesis uh, tribute band. Um, you guys have been going now for how many years? Well, Howard knows better than me because I joined after you started. How long yeah. is it now? Uh, about 2009. It came out of um, uh, an original progressive rock band uh, called Bruce's Spider, which sadly didn't last very long. We did a couple of gigs, but three members of that band, or two, two members originally and a third who joined later, um, formed the nucleus of, of Genesis. We, we all wanted to do Genesis music, um, and we thought, well, um, perhaps we could give it a go. So where was your, where was your inclusion on this? When did, you, <laughs> when, when did you land on the timeline? So About a year speak? after that, because uh, my, very briefly, my, my history is I tried to be in a Genesis tribute band before. I, I played with a band called Los Endos. But they wouldn't down tune, and I've got a baritone voice, ah. so I couldn't get the high notes and suppers ready. So they said, "We love you, Mike, but it ain't working." <laughs> so I had unfinished business. That was about 2005, and um, and then that year, it was 2010 actually. Yeah. I yeah. I thought I just I just want to uh, be in a Genesis tribute band as well as the original progressive stuff I started to do with the gift. So I auditioned. Yeah. I think I saw it on. Band mix or Gumtree or similar, mm-hmm. and I just went along. It was definitely unfinished business because when I was like 14, I imagined myself as Peter Gabriel. It's pretty bloody sad, isn't it? But uh, no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> and I, I knew I could sing it if people downtuned certain things, which you yes. don't do much anymore, do you? When it comes to sort of like putting together a a Genesis set, I mean, I just wanted to well, be interested to know how it is that you go about choosing the material for the stage show. Yeah. What we've den- tended to do in, in the early part of um, the shows was to uh, play songs from all the different albums, from Trespass um, all the way through. Calling all, well, not calling all stations, no, no, surely. Yeah, no, well, 
<laughs> we do. We went through. You know, I'm talking about a bit later. We yeah. went through to sort of Windham Mothering. Um, so the, the Gable period plus the Hackett period, and doing bits from all the albums so yeah. that we could try and please everybody really. Because some people have a favourite album rather than do a tour that was just on one album or just on um, on you know um, a couple of albums. Mm. But um, we have done a few special things as well. We did a, a couple of years ago. We did a thing called Six of the Best Revisited, where the one-off concert reunion with Peter Gabriel. We we did we did the exactly the same show with all the songs clean dodgy playing uh, and <laughs> we even because they were under rehearsal for that show yeah, I'm no we didn't we tried not to do too much dodgy playing yeah. but we, we, we reconstructed the coffin at the beginning Peter Gabriel came on in a coffin and um, so we brought Mike, Mike on in a coffin and although we, did that set, didn't that we? Was, we cheated a bit because um, he wasn't actually in the coffin because he was too heavy so <laughs> the sort of the top uh, well most exciting show we did of that was at Charter House which is where Genesis went how, how was that show was fantastic really, really well, we've done it three times now we did it in 2012, yeah. and um, Anthony Phillips turned up, and we did a song for him. Then we did it the year after, yeah. and that was the Six of the Best tour, it was. 2013. So Skipped a year, and then we did it this summer, yeah. didn't we? In 2015. So, we, we've, so we've continued. To, we've continued doing sort of the best of the progressive rock years, but yes. then next year we're putting together. We've put together a show which will be a very special show, which is we're going to play the whole of the Genesis live album live in the first half, and in the second half we're going to play what probably would have been on that album had it been a double album. Include, uh, including things like Can Utility and the Coastline. Can Utility and the Coastline. Wow. And stuff they didn't play much. Yeah. Obviously, Supper's Ready would have, should have been on the, if it would have been I a double Twilight album. Airhouse, they only did it yet. as a single album, Genesis Live, because they were worried about the price, because it was going to go into the places like WH Smith's and the, mm. you know, the cheaper uh, record shops. Yes. So they tried to make it a single album, but that meant they left off some of the classics and we're going to vary the second half a little bit for fans who come and see us regularly that's another thing we try and do not always play the same set but um what we're going to do with the genesis live is try and set up the show to look exactly like the album cover so mike's wow, going to have okay we'll have the shots nobody, taken mike will have an extra bass drum for the peter gabriel's bass drum which he played, played more, badly yeah just occasionally kicked it when he, he sort of felt like, felt like it yeah and um we're going to have the lighting will look similar. We'll have more ultraviolet lighting, and um, one of the friends of the band, who, who's our stage manager, um, Simon, has done a fantastic job at recreating the surrounds for the keyboard, so that we've got something that looks like a Hammond and looks like a Mellotron. Inside. You know the white things that Tony yeah. Banks has on the front. Yeah. Yeah. So again, to look way. like the album cover, um, and um, even even the positions of the amps and where people sit, it's going to all look like Genesis basically Live. hugely nerdy. <laughs> yeah. So I think people are all all like that. And well. Taking that a step further, I was yeah. going to ask you the, the sheer technical feats that they had to achieve in order to to, to make that live show happen. Yeah. Have you encountered any kind of similar things, maybe yeah. with the costumes or the or, or the instruments themselves? Well, yes. well, I can only really talk about. I'll talk about the costume yeah, side on, of then. it. Um, we thought about doing at one stage the lamb and. Two reasons why we, I th well, I certainly wasn't sure. A, I think it's, sorry, it runs out of steam slightly in the second, third, and fourth side. I mean, shoot me. And, it's, <laughs> and I don't think it, I think it does have the same dramatic tension, although I think it's great. And, and, and B, we thought it was just going to be too much to stage it because of the slipper man. So my challenges are getting the costumes to look really pucker. I'll give you an example. Uh, when I first joined the band, we decided we'd do Magog, Redbox, Old Man, Batwings, and Flower, didn't we? Mm. 
but they cost a fortune to get them done I can imagine in high density must, foam yeah. because I didn't want to have wood on my head and all this stuff and, and, and that, all that I think it was wire and tights that Gabriel used for the, for the bat wings <laughs> yeah. and we, we, we thought no it's just too tricky so we tried and simplify it but I have trials and tribulations not least of which trying to make the bat wings stay yeah. level they you're end gonna up get being some new diagonal you're going to get some so, new bat wings yeah but my, my, me, I think my, my yes I'm going to get some new bat wings but you've got to be careful because if you spend too much money you might still get a really hokey effect so we, I don't know what the strategy is, but to try and make it look as close to Genesis as possible, but cheat all the time. So that's what I'm always trying to do with the costume. Yeah, I think with the sound, we, we often, each cheat. gig, we always have technical things go wrong because um, it's like a real Genesis show. <laughs> we, there's that thing they call the curse of Rutherford. So there's always problems with that's bass. That's true. Always it was a buzz. Uh, buzzes or clicks or noises. But we, we usually just about manage to get the show ready just before we go on. Uh, we have slides, video. I mean, Genesis wouldn't have had video. Webcam, that's showing the performance. Webcam as well, close, yeah. But we, we try to, one of the things we were told by a friend of the band who went to school with them from Charles House, his name's Alan Reef. he said try to take it as well a little bit into the more modern technology of what would they have done had they carried on and had access to that more modern with technology. Gabriel. Yeah. So, you know, that means we can use a bit of animation and a bit of video. So at the beginning of Watch of the Skies, we can have, you know, skies moving and stuff, which the original Genesis would have had plain slides. They wouldn't have had the ability to have video. So we, right. we, we, we do a little bit, take a little bit of liberty there. And, um, you know, and again, all our lights are digital LED sort of lights, which again, they wouldn't have had at that time but we've pre-programmed as much as possible so all the light shows pre-programmed and we try and take out error by having having as much automated as we can. I think there's also another place where we take liberties, and I think this is really good fun, is we take artistic liberties with the costumes mm-hmm. and, and, and Howard oh. and I drive that. For example, Gabriel didn't do a Hogweed costume. Why the hell not? I mean, so yeah, so we have now have this green man thing that I come on in, and it's really mad. It looks a bit like Predator, actually, with all these green tendrils coming yeah. up. It doesn't look like a Hogweed, but it looks like a, an evil green vegetable man, it does. doesn't it? And, then, and we're also going to do Get Him Out by Friday, yeah. a bowler hat for the Winkler, a, a, a big cigar for John DePebble. There's something else. Can Utility. Can Utility. We've, we've, got, built we've a, got a throne we've created. Built a throne. And I'm going to be wow. standing there with... Okay. Because, and, I, and the thing is, we, I worried that sort of pure, purist fans would say, how dare you? Genesis did not do that. Because you know the geek quotient's high. But actually, no, people bloody love it. People they love, love it. the extra So bits. in other words, we're taking, we're being more theatrical than them. And that's really... I enjoy that. The other question I was going to ask yeah. is specifically when you're on stage I know that there's an awful lot for you to to, to take in yep. you're producing a, sh- a show mm. for people do you ever have time for yourselves to go this is great I always love there's certain bits of the show I love the highlight for me is when Mike comes out as, with a Magog costume on his head and we do the 666 six, six. the 666 six, six is one of the climaxes in Ready. and that, that <laughs> moment is fantastic and for, for you know I'm playing fairly simple chords at that point um, so when I'm playing fairly simple, uh, there's not, nothing really that simple in Genesis on keyboards, but when I'm playing the simpler bits, then I can enjoy what's going on around me and really enjoy the music. When I'm playing the more difficult bits, I have to really concentrate. And um, for me as a performer, certain songs challenge me because when I'm doing the choice Collins ones we do, like uh, Ripples and Afterglow, they're quite high for my voice. And I've practised, I don't have to use falsetto, but I have to really relax and, and, and pitch them properly because they're quite high for my baritone. So I never, in, I don't really enjoy those as much as I'd like because I'm concentrating on technically getting the, the, the notes out. But at times when I'm not playing, like I'm backstage getting changed whilst they're doing the Firth or Fifth solo, or, or there's a moment where I can just stand on stage and enjoy it. it not only do I really love it, it actually comes, sometimes it gets to me. So, you know, like suppers, I, I can get moved by it. 
you know, and yeah. I have to be really yeah. careful. Yeah, and I at do. the end of Afterglow, when I've stopped singing and it's all that big crescendo, because that means a lot to me for a lot of reasons, it's associated with some people I've lost and so on. There's moments when I have to watch, I don't blub, actually. Yeah. But that's the time when I stop thinking like a performer and all the technical demands of that, like your technical musical demands, and I start to remember what it's like as a, as a fan. I wish there was more of those moments, though, well, to be one, honest. One other element which I, I wanted to ask you was, has there ever been anything that's genuinely surprised you? Well, there's, there's always a surprise when I'm that's learning the material, because I've been playing it since I was 13, and then as I learn new songs, or uh, I realised that I wasn't playing them exactly right, because I was playing them by ear, and of course when you learn it properly, you, you have to get rid of the... Um, have to get rid of the mistakes yeah so there's there's always a bit of a surprise when we learn a new song and, and then i realize i've for the last 30 years or so i've been playing it slightly wrong <laughs> but um uh, you know but hopefully not too wrong but um you know, so you have to unlearn um, bad habits them. i create some surprises though because you remember gabriel oh, yes. right the classic yeah. thing that gabriel yeah. and this is well known i'm sure to you gabriel knew that if he told the other guys especially tony banks i'm going to wear dresses and foxes says they say no you're not and you know the story that he yes, came on in indeed. a dublin boxing ring and it was a surprise to them yeah. i got howard that way when we played charterhouse this summer i didn't tell anyone it was me and the stage manager of simon he said mike red dress fox's head we've got it all sorted out and so I know you're asking about do you get surprises on stage? Oh, yeah, and it's a slightly did. different answer no, to the I question think you're asking. Great. But it's so funny because nobody, the audience, but the band didn't know. We, didn't and know we did it in Los Endos because I didn't want to try and sing with the Fox's head on. And it's ridiculous. I mean, Gabriel cut away the mouth. Yeah. I never really personally liked Fox's head for the end of Musical Box, although it's iconic because it's not redolent with the song, and the old man is. So I didn't ever want to do the Fox's head in Musical Box because I think it's naff, mm. personally. So I came on in, in Los Endos in with drag. a tambourine and started shimmying. It was started shimmying so funny. With, uh, and that, 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 you when almost stopped on, playing, didn't luckily, you? You almost was, stopped playing. It was very fortunate. I was just doing that, duh, 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 the very sort of simple chords on uh, I Know What I Like rather than the solo or something because I, I nearly jumped out my skin when I saw him wearing this fox's head and the, the red dress. And it looked hilarious. I mean, he does need to lose a bit of weight, if you don't mind. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Bloody right. <laughs> it was actually the funniest moment we've ever had in the band when he did that. And, and a lot of people thought it was hilarious. But it, it, was, it was quite shocking because it was so unexpected. Yeah, 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 and it was, it was a great moment. It's, uh, I think it's somewhere on YouTube. I think what surprises me as well, to, to answer the other the real implication of your question, is that I, I don't play except a bit of very basic flute. And Gabriel wasn't a great flute player, so that's all right. <laughs> but he certainly wasn't an Ian Anderson. But beyond that, I don't have instrumental yeah. pressures yeah. what surprises me is the intricacy and what astonishes us all the time is how these guys probably even more so with the early stuff when they were like 19 20 21 were writing this very complicated very music, complicated yeah. stuff and i remember being at school in the 70s we had a kind of trendy music teacher and he said to us oh bring rock in that you like and so a guy brought in the Yes fans will love this, by the way. Not. Uh, a guy brought in Yes, and I brought in Genesis, Trick of the Tail. And he listened to it, and he was a really, really gifted classical scholar. And he listened to both. I think we played Gates of Delirium, a part of it, and then something about Genesis. I don't remember what we played by Genesis. But he said, Yes, play quite straightforward stuff and make it sound complicated. Genesis play very complex stuff and it sounds less technical than yes and that's their genius this is from a guy and I, I agree okay. with that and I think and you say often mm. it's like classical music it's written mm. Banks especially I'm a huge fan of Banks uh, I think he's the, he's the musical heart of the band and again I'm not a musician in that sense although I do write and play in the gift but when I watch these guys in rehearsal getting their fingers around whatever it might be like the end of some artists I'm staggered 
that these guys could not not so much the technical difficulty of it although it is hard i can see that it's that these guys could write it so young well look i'd like to thank both you mike and you howard for taking a bit of time out from uh, because we're, we're currently in in chepstow where uh, where um, mike and howard's other band the gift have been performing at summer's end yeah we're not pretending in that one <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, and thanks very much and uh, i hope i hope we get a chance to bump into one another again soon thank you very much thanks very much Finally, we were able to chat for a little while with keyboard player and musical director Joe Trainer, who has a long history of putting on tribute shows. But one of his latest projects is putting on a three-hour uh, extravaganza of Genesis music, which he will be performing sometime over the, the summer at the World Cafe Live in Philadelphia. Well, welcome one and all. Um, I'm here today with musician extraordinaire uh, Joe Trainer, who is the, the heart and the soul of, uh, of one of actually my favourite Genesis tribute acts, which is the Keep It Dark project. Uh, welcome, Joe. Oh, thanks for having me. So, quick question. How did you find Genesis and what, what started the, uh, the, the fascination with the band? Probably have to go back to Duke and Avocat. And believe it or not, probably MTV was probably my first real introduction to them because they would play, they, they played the Turn It On video and they played the, the truncated Abacab video. And so that was the first time I knew who they were, that they existed. My older brother, who's four years older than me, he was a fan. They, he went to the Abacab tour and then he bought Three Sides Live. And that was it for me. So I had heard Abacab, I heard Duke, and you know, they were pretty good. They, they, they're amazing sounding albums. But the Three Sides Live album, was the perfect, I feel like, introduction to everything because being familiar with the, the trio's early 80s output, um, they were represented on the record. And then you get to that third side and they set you up with that hit with Misunderstanding and then they, then they just blew me away with 15 minutes of In the Cage and Afterglow. And I remember we had one of those large console record players. It used to belong to my dad or whatever. We'd listen to vinyl in those. And I would, I would put on In the Cage an air keyboard to it <laughs> all the way through. So, like, I knew every nuance of that song at 13 years old. And, of course, that's the gateway, right? So, like, my brother also had, like, Trick of the Tail and Wind and Wuthering. He had the music books as well. So I kind of thumbed through those. And I didn't really take to them right away until I found Seconds Out. Because Seconds Out, what it had was the full cinema show. Now the wonderful thing, if you're coming in at from this angle, from the Phil Collins era, Seconds Out is the next transition. Because it's still familiar, because it's still Phil, but it's a lot of Gabriel era material. So you've got Firth of Fifth, and Cinema Show, and Supper's Ready, The Lamb. So, I, so I'm listening to it, and, and probably gravitated to Cinema Show because of the older material. I was already familiar with some of the themes because they were in, in the cage. But then you just slowly just absorb the whole record. Yes. You know? But it's still a very Phil Collins record. Yes. Yeah. So, love it or leave it, I still feel like some of those, like that version of Supper's Ready is definitive to me. I feel like, I, I love Gabriel and I love the Foxtrot album, but that version of Supper's Ready takes an amazing composition and puts it on its feet with confidence. And it just, it, to me, that's the quintessential version of that song. So from there, it was exploring. It was going back and being like, oh, well, Supper's Ready is on Fox Ride. Let me listen to that. Oh, oh, and I probably got the live album in there at some point. So I, I started getting familiar with like, Watcher in the Skies and Get Him Out by Friday. 
and was probably a legit Genesis head before the Genesis Genesis album even came out. Right. So we're talking, this is all probably within the span of eight or nine months. Got it. Yeah. Well, um, I, I know that you are a, um, a professional musician by trade. What, after all of these years, brought you round to the idea of putting together a, a tribute act or, or a night of, of Genesis music? So I, I was in a progressive rock band, an original progressive rock band in the 90s. And nobody cared. <laughs> Simply nobody cared. Um, you're playing a bar in Wilmington, Delaware, and nobody wants to hear a 10-minute opus with flying keyboard solos or anything. So, But I was steadfast. I thought if I was good, if we were good, people would enjoy it, even if it wasn't a three-minute pop song. And boy, was I wrong. And there's some stuff from that era that I'm proud of, but in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, it was very, it was very self-centered music. Yes. So I, I abandoned that concept, and in, in 2000, I actually found myself in a progressive metal band, and it, it did better because the players were better. So even if you weren't into long-form progressive rock, you could at least marvel at the acrobatics on stage. Yes. <clears throat> it was a very over-the-top type of band, and so, people, so we at least got people's attention based on our chops. And we're talking, this is easily, you know, 10 years later, so I'm a veteran musician, and people always playing with better musicians. In 2004, I got a group of friends together who were all Floyd fans, and I was like, I'm going to do a production of Pink Floyd's The Wall. And we did it actually as a fundraiser because I didn't want to spend money to do it. I said, dear theater, I will give you whatever we make, just let us do the show here. We did, we did two nights, sold them out. We built a 15-foot wall, came crashing out at the end behind us because our egos were still in play. <laughs> but, um, but it was still an interesting production, and um, so that was the first time that I did a tribute of any kind. And I had my sight, sights on doing others, and it just never materialized with that group. And it wasn't until 2011 that I had finally had a conversation with my friend Matt Urban. He wanted to do physical graffiti. And he's, he's like, I know you can sing it, because I've heard you sing Zeppelin. Because we did Led Zeppelin too with my piano trio, without a guitar player. Yes, because this is, this is actually an important point to make. Is that you are a multi-instrumentalist, but your main two things really are singing and playing piano, right. basically. Right. So that was, I was like, I want to do all Zeppelin too. We don't have a guitar player. I don't care. I'll play. And I released an electric piano sound with a distortion pedal, and we played everything. Um, and then we did Abbey Road without a piano. So I like doing, see, I, I, I have got this mindset that, and, and this is probably from my prog days, if you will, I look at music as pieces of work. They're, they're, the Beatles' Abbey Road has some great songs, but it is also a great piece of work from top to bottom. Yeah. And no different than Close to the Edge or The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It, it is a complete work, and Zeppelin II, to me, works the same way. So I did those, and Matt, Matt had heard me, actually, his company videotaped me doing Zeppelin 2 so he knew I could sing Plant. I'm going to do physical graffiti. I'm like, all right, you put a band together and I'll, I'll come along. And we did. And we formed In The Light. And In The Light is working on its fifth show right now. We've done five shows. The first one was Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. The second one was An Evening of Queen. It was Queen of the Queen. We did, we had an eight-piece band, a 30-piece choir for that wow. show. Wow. I did all the vocal arrangements. We did 12 weeks of rehearsals with the choir. It was stellar. Then we did The Who which still was a huge undertaking, especially for our bass player and Matt, <laughs> our drummer. But um, that was a blast, cause I love The Who. And, um, and then our last show, we did We Should Rehear an Animals by Pink Floyd. And this September, we're going to be doing um, 
the Eagles, including Hotel California. But after our Pink Floyd show, I went to the guys and I said, I want to do a Genesis show. And a couple of them were like, mm. I'm like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So Matt, our drummer, Christian, our bass player, and Andy, one of our guitar players, were on board for it. I reached out to my friend Adam Beck because I knew he was a huge Genesis fan and guitarist. That's a huge undertaking to be like, I'm going to now learn all of the Steve Hackett note for note. And he did a stellar job. And then I reached out um, to the lead singer of a band called Valdez to see if I could borrow their keyboard player. <laughs> and did he let you? Thankfully, yes. Because seriously, <laughs> I cannot sing Joe Cardillo's praises enough. Joe is wonderful because not only is he super talented, but he's a great guy, but he also has very little ego. And so when I told him, I said, look, I'm a keyboard player, and I've been listening to this stuff for years. I'm going to sing this show, but I'd like to play keys on a couple of moments. So we were able to kind of split up. Like, there was no way I was doing a Genesis show and not playing some portion of the In the Cage solos. Because it's just been my dream since I was 12 years old. <laughs> and he got that. And it was really cool because there were a couple of moments where there were, um, there were harmony keyboard parts. Yes. Naturally. Where yeah. the Tony and Joe could have played by himself. I'm like, let's do it together. It'll be cool. We'll be face to face. And, uh, that's it. and then we split the uh, In the Quiet Earth solo. I played the first part. He played the second part. And then I played, and it was actually worked out great because going into Afterglow, you've got that little bit from, is it the Raven? So he let me play that while he played the chords underneath, and that that allowed him to just go easily into Afterglow. I did the faded that out, and when I was done, I could go back to singing. So it actually worked out um, where he didn't have to worry about how do I get a third hand in here, um, and then I got to play a little bit, and then I played all the flute parts, which was fun. Because I'm not a flute player, so to be able to play those on the keys was cool. Uh, I think what sets uh, the Keep It Dark project um, apart from from many others is this is one of the rare examples of an of, of an all eras um, yes. tribute act. <laughs> um, now, I mean, I've seen a couple in my my time, and and there are there's one very good one in the UK called uh, Mama, okay. who, who are an all, all eras one, but. Um, one of the things that, that, that you mentioned on stage uh, when I saw you last was that uh, you're p playing material from every album from Trespass through to, is it Invisible Touch? Yes. So um, what informed your choice of, uh, of, of, of set then? Well, what informed my choice was the fact that I wanted to do more than that. I actually wanted to do at least one song off of from Genesis to Revelation, straight up to Calling All Stations. Okay. I am not a huge fan of the Calling All Stations album. I will totally admit that. I have tried. Trust me, it's my favorite band. I have tried. <laughs> and, um, but like the Divining Line, Not About Us, they're good songs. Um, and I could have, we could have worked one of those into the set. But most people wouldn't have known them. And that was the argument from, from the people who were thinking against it. It was mm -hmm. like, not many people are going to know anything from that album. They didn't chart here. That's not what they want to hear. They want to hear what they've come to hear. It's hard to argue with that. Um, and they also talked me out of doing anything off of We Can't Dance. I originally had um, No Son of Mine to set. I would love to do Driving the Last Spike, but my favorite on that record is Living Forever. That's that's the one I really wanted to do. But another, again, it's like not, people are, not that many people are going to know it because most of your hardcore Genesis fans had kind of fallen off by then um, and maybe didn't get that album to do it may have deserved and even the people who were who were casual listeners and and we'll call them hit appreciators wouldn't have known those songs either beyond no son of mine so, so you just to um 
to, to clarify, you basically put on a three-hour show split into two uh, one-and-a-half-hour sets with a little break in the middle. How do you pace a set like that? Well, I, it was tricky because I wanted to make... First of all, we had two guitar players. So we had one that pretty much... So instead of having a Mike Rutherford with a bass and a 12-string, we utilized two guitar players. So we had a Hackett and a Rutherford guitarist and a bass player. So when sitting down and looking at the song selection we had, the two things that I wanted to do is I wanted to juxtapose the Gabriel versus the Collins. I wanted to mix it up so it wasn't like... So you didn't get a huge dose of Gabriel and then, oh, here's a Collins song. I wanted to show the brilliance in their songwriting throughout the entire night. You had to balance that against building your set to a crescendo. Yes. And then you also had to balance, I don't want Adam to be out there for four songs in a row. I've got to make sure I mix it up so Andy gets some stage time, and vice versa. Yes. So you had to take those three things into consideration and ended up with the set list that we had. There were some obvious choices in the set, I felt like. Um, there were things I felt like we needed to do. And I, also, and I had in my mind ways that I, I knew I wanted it to start and ways that I knew I wanted it to end. So we did like seven songs, and our seventh song was Misunderstanding, and I said, we're going to do one more, and we're going to take a break. And that one more was the 19-minute In the Cage Afterglow medley. So there were people who were like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and then we did it to them again when we came back for the encore, and the encore was Supper's Ready. So it's like, but I, I let people know right off the bat, I said, please be comfortable. This is not going to be a short show, because you can't do a short show. Were there any surprises that were thrown up um, when it came to choosing the material or, or learning or performing the material? Was there... Well, I don't know. I think um, one thing, a couple of small things maybe, um, one thing we weren't worried about is we ran, I ran a sequence that I created in my keyboard for the percussion track of Domino. Now, we had done the same thing with Matt on drums for our Who show for Eminence Front, and for uh, one other one. Oh, you better, you bet. So he was used to drumming to something from the keyboard. Yeah. So I was like, well, we got this. Right? I just put this loop together, and then he played the rest of the song on, um, on his electric kit. It was awesome. And it, it's funny, because the first time we did it, I was like, that's Domino. All the pieces are there. So that was a, like a little technical thing. I was to make sure that works out fine. I also got to play drums in this show, which I had never done live in front of a person before ever. Um, but fortunately, it was just Abacab, and it's a straight beat. So I knew I, I, there's no way I'm going to mess this up. Like, I, I got this. The, um, other thing, the other thing I was going to ask you was, um, when I saw... I mean, it was a, it was a packed theatre. I mean, it was, a, it was full to bursting yeah, that night. I dare say that it will be during the next few shows as well that so. you do. The one thing that I did notice is that um, the band had consciously chosen some of the live renditions over some of the studio renditions. Was, was that a deliberate choice? This actually was a bone of contention with some people because within the light, the, I, when we did our, our, we did Wish You Were Here in Animals, it was note for note by the record, including fade outs. Same with the Queen stuff. Like we've always tried to, the whole mantra is we're recreating the record on stage. Part of the problem was once you commit to we're doing In the Cage, you're deviating from studio albums. So the only two things were, first of all, a lot of, you want to you get the right endings, right? So we opened up our second set with Squonk, which fades out on the record. Second out's got the perfect ending. 
um, if we had done the full version of Cinema Show instead of included in the in the cage medley, the seconds out ending is wonderful. Um, so to me, it was already well. We're going to the live albums for endings, um, and I knew originally we were going to do Dance on a Volcano into Los Endos, a la Seconds Out. So already, I'm pulling from some of these live moments. I did make it very clear. I said I'm not going to create a medley. If Genesis hasn't done it, we won't do it. Okay, yeah. So you know, we could have done it, Watcher of the Skies, but we were never going to do a Foxtrot medley of like Watcher of the Skies, Get Him Out by Friday, and Candy Toad in the Coastliners awesome as that would be. <laughs> um, if Genesis didn't do it, we wouldn't do it. Right. Um, and we had, to, we had to mess with a little bit because if I didn't want to do eight and a half minutes of I Know What I Like, I'm not going to do the big tambourine thing because we're not aping them. We're not trying to be them. But I knew I wanted to do I Know What I Like. So I was trying to find the right version because I always liked the, the stagnation tease, which they've always done. They've done it. They did it. It seemed like it was an afterthought in on Seconds Out, like it kind of happened organically. But then by 92, it was, this is what we're doing. And yeah. same with 07. So what I did, is we actually learned the 07 Library Europe version. Because ah, okay. it's down a key, which makes it a little easier to sing. Unlike Squonk. <laughs> but it's also, it's five minutes. Yes. And it's got, it's got a little bit of... Guitar improv, Daryl Strummer's kind of playing in there a little bit, then they go into stagnation, they come out for the double chorus, and you're done. And it's like, so everything's there. All the elements of, of the nice, short, live arrangement was on live in Europe. So, like, we chose that. So, but, like, Watch of the Skies, if you want to call that a version, we did the live version because it's slower than Foxtrot. Foxtrot's fast. So, I mean, so that was, there was a choice. We started with endings and then kind of some of the medleys, and then it just kind of happened organically from there. It's an all-eras tribute act. Which, of course, you had to sing. And while Gabriel and Collins did have very complimentary voices, as their careers went on, they did take very different paths with regards to vocals. Did that present a challenge to you as a vocalist? I think, what, I think my plan was I was going to sing it like me. I was never going to try to sound like Gabriel. You can't help it, though. I think if you're doing something... That influence is there, and I think as a vocalist, I'm very, I have a very unique voice that's unique to me, much like yes. everybody does. But I think that Gabriel's and, and Collins and Billy Joel, they've all influenced how I approach a vocal. So if I'm doing a Billy Joel song, I'm going to just by Osmosis. reflex, yeah, right, yeah. I'm just going to sing it more like Billy, and if I'm doing a Gabriel song. However, I did kind of lean on more of the Collins interpretations of everything. I mean, with the exception of if Collins never sang it, like Watcher of the Skies, you know. But in the end, I never, I never pretend to sound like anybody. And that's by design. Part of what we don't do is we, there's no costumes. There's very minimal lighting in that venue. The lighting actually, they have a better lighting rig in Philly. So that, I think, I think the lighting guy there will have a little more fun with it. It wasn't about recreating the Genesis experience. It's about paying homage to the material. Yes. And so, but it's also, Kiva Dark plays this material, which means that you get Adam Beck's guitar doing its best to capture Hackett's emotion, but it's never going to be Hackett. It's going to be always a little bit Adam Beck. Yeah. I figure as long as we play it well, as, yeah. long, as, as long as we don't mess it up, people are just going to be glad to hear the material. It was the very first time that the project has played live, which was, was down at the Wilmington yes. World Cafe Live Theatre, wasn't it? <laughs> 
I wasn't worried about our Who show or our Floyd show. And there are fewer bands that people are more critical of than Genesis. We didn't select a show for the people who love throwing it all away. We put the show together for the people who like squonk and robbery, assault, and battery, and you know stagnation. And it's so when you know you're purposely putting a show on for diehard fans, you better do it justice. And you could go do a Zeppelin show, as long as you have some range, people are really forgiving because that's my jam. You know they don't yeah. care. It's like yeah. oh, so I just knew I was just afraid that people would kind of fine-tooth comb it a little bit and put it under the microscope. and So I was really happy with the reaction from yeah. the audience. I think that they were just happy to hear a band resurrecting this material. I agree. And I think, to be honest with you, there was a lot of people there that, that loved some of the later uh, material as well. I mean, you, you play Domino, you play Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, of material there. You know, you play Abacab as well. The long version. The right? long so. version, yeah, exactly. Um, going forward, how do you see the set developing? I think that ever. I think we are looking, like for instance, one of the things Joe says is he felt like we should do more of the later hits. But for me, I don't think, I don't think that's the draw. Like I, I, I don't think. Not that he doesn't want to play the other stuff. I mean, of course he does, but. He's thinking, he's thinking appealing. Mm -hmm. you know, what's what's going to make us more appealing? But I think just putting Genesis on the paper is what's bringing people in the door. And I don't think you're going to get a lot of people who are like, I can't wait to hear them play In Too Deep. Yes. Or Hold On My Heart. And the thing is, most of the hits, I mean, they never really had hits in the Gable era. And they didn't even have hits until Follow You, Follow Me, which we did. We did Follow You, Follow Me. We did Misunderstanding. We did Turn It On Again. We did Land of Confusion, which is probably their... Their biggest song, sales-wise. Um, but we didn't do Invisible Touch, and we didn't do Throwing It All Away. And the goal was to not do anything slow. I think the slowest song we did was Follow You, Follow Me, and Afterglow. So it's like, I wanted to keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. I mean, alternatively, sort of like, I mean, you can go completely in the opposite direction. I mean, there's no point did I ever think that, that you guys were, were going to bust out Twilight Alehouse or Naminanu, sort of like, on the set. It purely was something to keep the audience... Um, focused on the material that they love. Right, but seriously though, if we did Inside and Out, like to me, if there were only 12 people in the, out, of the, out of the 350 people that were there, that couldn't, that would, their minds would be blown <laughs> because that's their favorite song, yeah. I would do it. Yeah. I would do Evidence of Autumn or Open Door. Like there's so many B-sides. The problem is they've got like 12 or 13 albums full of great material that we didn't even consider B-sides. Yeah. And we're, for the next one, we, we talked about doing the Duke Suite, but we also talked about doing two songs, <clears throat> doing a Paper Late and No Reply at All. Okay. Bring on a horn yeah. section for two songs, which would be fantastic, but we can't do both because to me, yes. now we're Collins heavy. My whole thing was I felt like most of the tribute acts that I see are very Gabriel heavy, and that's all well and good. And that material is wonderful, but I want it... 50-50. I want it really even to celebrate their entire career. And if we, and once you throw in 30 more minutes of Collins, it's hard to pull 30 minutes of Collins out of what we're doing. Yeah. You know, you have to sacrifice Domino, you have to sacrifice Home by the Sea, and you have to sacrifice maybe Hogweed. You know, you gotta pull something from Gabriel as well to make room for this, because you can't do a four-hour show because exactly I'll right, never yeah. be able to get past three hours <laughs> vocally. 
So there's definitely some things, but I would also do like Harold the Barrel, and you know our our bass players like, can we please do Candy Tony and the Coastliners? Like so there's there's a lot of some would call them obscure to me that would just be lesser known tunes. They're not the go-to songs, and as long as you didn't fill the setup with them to throw in something like Candy Tony or Evidence of Autumn or something like that. <laughs> but um no that'd be fantastic and i think that you would then have a segment of the audience to be like these guys get it yeah. like these guys yeah. are truly fans well that's really good well look thank you very much for, for for talking a little bit about this and uh when are you when is the keep it dark project playing next the show's uh at world cafe live in philly on july 16th tickets are on sale now fantastic so thanks for having me yeah thank you very much so, all of us around the tabletop here, we've seen different Genesis tribute apps, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Ellie, you, growing up in Buenos Aires down in Argentina, where the band didn't necessarily tour around a lot, you, mm. you had a strong <laughs> connection to the community down there. Yeah, there, was, um, there were several tribute acts. Uh, one of them was Rail, or Rail, for <laughs> in the, uh, with the right. Spanish pronunciation. Spanish. Yep. <laughs> anyway, so they played in Buenos Aires and around Buenos Aires, even in Chile and other countries in South America. In the, this was what the, a time period during the late eighties, okay, maybe early nineties, and there were other you know tribute bands that I would just see with friends. For me, it's just the the, the social aspect, you know, just meeting with friends and you know seeing this mm-hmm. this band, yeah. hearing the music you love basically. And Rail was very professional. Uh, now they play under the name of Genetics, slightly different, you know, lineup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it's not a carbon copy, but it's, it's um, they use the costumes, you know, and the, mm-hmm. the setup. And some other bands um, that are not playing anymore, uh, they just, it's like small clubs or pubs, like it's a different setup. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been great, you know, mm-hmm. even though I never, I mean, I saw Genesis in 2007, but during the 80s and 90s, we didn't have the chance. Mm-hmm. So it was really kind of a worldwide experience, these tribute acts out there. And it really, in your case, it gave you a chance to see this music live that you would have never had a chance to see. Yeah, previous. it was quite an experience because seeing, you know, Supper's Ready, The Knife, uh, you know, parts of The Lamb. It's a very visceral experience, visceral especially, when you're, uh, especially when you're hearing songs which you love for the first time played live. Yeah, some songs that, that you know, you, you, you've been listening for ages and you see the visuals, you know, what costume they use, and, you mm-hmm. know, because you might have seen like photos or mm-hmm. bad quality videos here and mm-hmm. there, but seeing the, the, you know, live, you know, this band playing live, it was quite an experience, so yes. So what were some other people's experiences with tribute acts? Well, maybe it might be a good question to ask what tribute acts you've mm. actually seen, what Genesis yeah. tribute acts, you know, it, just go around the table and sure. ask which are the tribute acts that we've actually witnessed ourselves. I have personally only have seen for tribute acts the musical box and a band called Trespass. Now, if I remember correctly, the musical box are effectively the biggest tribute oh, yes. band by, by, by a fair amount actually in the world at the moment the biggest Genesis tribute act they are the bootleg Beatles of the Genesis <laughs> world right. aren't they I mean to the point where I think you have tribute bands and then you have the musical box That's, I kind of put it in this other realm it's, it's, it's not like a tribute band like you go to a bar on Friday night and see someone covering Kiss or Led Zeppelin. Their goal is to recreate the old Genesis shows with the stage set up and, you know, costumes and things like that. And they really want to 
duplicate those shows as much as possible. And I, I compared it when Steve Hackett was doing his Genesis Revisited tour, where Steve's band is kind of bringing these songs into the modern era, whereas the musical box, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're a museum show. Yeah. They're trying to recreate something and show you what it was like. And that seems to be their mission to do that. And that's that's fine. It's I'm, a mission that has succeeded very yeah, well. Exactly. And They've done fine for themselves that way. I was going to say, it's been 20 years, almost 20 years since I saw my first musical box show. And I can't believe mm. that much time has passed. <laughs> so that was the probably the first tribute band I've seen, I saw, the musical box. And after that, in L.A., there was Gabble Ratchet, Supernatural and Tists, which I think be, morphed into Cinema Show. Um, I think The Watch... They, yeah, actually, they, I've seen the they, watch. They play in New York that. City. BBC yeah, sometimes we saw them. I there. think they have a sort of like a hybrid kind of mentality because they play some original material yes. as well as. How who, who have you seen, Stacey? Um, I've seen the musical box more times than I could count <laughs> for <laughs> the length of time that Tom's been seeing right. them too for almost twenty years. Um, I've also seen Adams uh, and Angelo's Genesis Piano Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen The Watch live, but the show I saw them at, they did their own material, oh, which okay. kind of sounded like Foxtrot <laughs> <laughs> right. in many ways. But, um, you know, you could just hear when even performing their own material, like mm-hmm. they would, you, I was thinking, wow, they, they if I could hear them do Genesis song, I think they might have done one or two tracks at right. the end. Um, you know, they... He, the, the lead singer sounds exactly like Gabriel. It's kind of creepy um, how much he sounds like him. Simon? For me, I've, I've seen... I haven't seen that many. I've seen what it, many consider to be the biggest European okay. tribute band, which is a band called Regenesis. Ah, sure. Um, uh, I have seen... Uh, I've seen the Book of Genesis okay. play live. And I also saw a very interesting Genesis tribute band, which is a Phil Collins-only era tribute band called Mama. Sure, okay. Tom and I just realized (laughs) together, we just looked at each other like, oh crap, we forgot we saw another tribute band together. What was it? It was um, Martin Levac's uh, Turn It On Again. Turn It On Again show. That was phenomenal. I can't believe I forgot that one. It was one of my favorite (laughs) tribute shows I've ever seen. They recreated the the Three Sides Live Tour, which is my favorite live album. And I don't know if if any of the listeners here know Martin Levac. He was a drummer in the musical box, um, mm-hmm. I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, yeah. he was part of the band. I saw him and with he, the uh, Lamb Show. Yeah, yeah, he looks and sounds exactly like Phil yeah. from the early 80s. So for him and his band, they're from Montreal doing Is he a lefty? Show. He's a lefty. He's a lefty. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He does the tambourine tarantelle you know on yeah, stage yeah. And oh yeah the little dance that phil does everything it's yeah it was incredible so that was a fun show it was in one time we saw that yeah, yeah. so what have you seen ellie i saw well in argentina as i said rail and then this band called chaniton who would do genesis and marillion sometimes and then in, when i moved to the uk in the in the early 2000s i've seen countless bands well, there are so many tributes in in the london area i saw regenesis i saw in the cage G2, and then, um, I mean, I've seen the musical box several times in around the UK and here in the US also, so. And then the, the watch is the Italian? Yes, yeah, and I we saw, saw the watch here, yes. yeah, So yes, that's me. It's an interesting, my big thing about uh, tribute bands is that back during the 80s when they first kind of struggled out of the, the, the mix, apparently it's, a, it's an Australian phenomenon. Sure. It, right. started, it began life in Australia because nobody went there. Mm. And as right. a result, uh, sorry Australia, um, 
the scene being, you know, Australians are a resourceful bunch of people, mm-hmm, and right. uh, and they uh, they said, well, okay, well, if they if the bands we love aren't going to come here, we'll recreate the shows, mm-hmm. and that sort of spread out through the world from from there, and I think. During the 80s and 90s, it kind of felt a little bit like, I won't say cheating, but nowadays when bands are no longer touring, Mm -hmm. they're the only way you're going to get remotely in touch with the music that you love nowadays. And as a result, it becomes more like seeing an orchestra uh, reciting a piece of classical music from a long-dead composer. And, uh, you know, let's face it, the chances of us going to see a, an actual Genesis gig, and even if they were to get back together, it won't be the yeah, 1980s right. Genesis. Right. It won't because, be the 1970s yeah, Genesis. people now. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My feeling towards tribute bands is I'm glad they're out there, but I personally don't feel the need to see them all the time. Like, actually, we should mention, we're actually seeing the musical box tonight. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're so, dragging you there, Mike. Right. Yeah, I, I, I am always happy to see them, but I, the last time I saw the musical box was probably three years ago. If we weren't seeing them this year, uh, I could go a couple years without seeing them. You know, it's it's not something that I've, I'm personally that interested in, but I'm always happy to see them when we do. But the first time I saw the musical box was in 2006. 2008 and it was it was in new york city and they were doing the selling england shows and it was great to see because i was like oh that's how they did it on stage back in the day with genesis and everything it was fine i saw the lamb shows which i thought actually were tremendous just again to see how that was done but i find that and this is a critique that I will say, not a criticism, but I'm, I'm not as interested in covers that do carbon copies of the originals. I, I, as a listener, want to see a cover like that rearranges things slightly or that does things a little bit differently. But that's not really a tribute band's right. job, is exactly. it? I mean, and if you're a band yeah. doing a cover, yeah. I can understand that. A tribute band's job is to do what... Because, you know, the, right. the, the clue is in the title, Tribute. Sure. And maybe that's why I'm not terribly into the tribute band scene. I can see that. So that's, yeah, fair enough. like, I'm not, if if a tribute band was playing down the street to any band that I liked, I wouldn't necessarily be like, oh, I gotta go see that show. Mm. Like, I've seen, again, the Genesis ones, Tom and I and Ellie went to a al- show by Almost Queen. Uh, that was entertaining. Um, I liked how the Brian May and Freddie Mercury characters and even the Roger Taylor characters were trying to look, look like their respective musicians and the John Deacon bass player person just didn't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't look anything like John Deacon and didn't even try to. Um, and that was fun, you know? It's yeah. it's. But I, I personally just don't get into it, whereas Ellie has talked to me about when she was in London. Yes, I would go a lot to... As I said, it's more of a social thing to do, to meet right. with friends and, you know, have a drink and, you know, listen to the music we love. And, you know, yes, have a good time. We're not looking, oh, I, I need to see this band that makes a carbon copy and, you know, I'll pretend I'm seeing Genesis. I mean, it's not about that for me, at least. Yes, you're absolutely right. There is a social element to all mm-hmm. of this because you're much like this podcast. You're talking with like-minded people right. about stuff that... If you met anybody else in the street, they go, what? Yeah, they you wouldn't know? care about it. Exactly. Yeah. But I think, again, it, it speaks to, to, to what Tom said, which is there are tribute bands and then there are tribute bands. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between 
uh, a band like Regenesis, and, mm-hmm. and 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 this is not, I'm not disparaging any other sure. band. I mean, Regenesis just do it better because in a lot of ways they kind of got in their foot in the door first sure. in a lot of ways. But um, I've seen some very very good acts performing Genesis material. Steve Hackett, for example, right. who do a different take on it, right? But still have that sense of authenticity because they are they were you know there was a right. member that was actually band. a member of Genesis, exactly. yeah. but I have never seen the Musical Box. Sure. This is going to be my first show to see the Musical Box. I have seen Regenesis, mm-hmm. and and you know and uh, and so is Ellie. I saw them doing the Lamb mm-hmm. uh, tour, and I was fascinated. Part of me was fascinated. Not because I was desperate to hear a live version of Genesis. Mm. I was very interested to see how they were putting on the show. Right. And uh, maybe maybe there's a train spotter element to <laughs> sure. me on that. Yeah. And they, were, they used to play in smaller venues, whereas the musical box, I think they play in yeah, theatres. Big, yeah. Well, when I saw Regenesis, they, they, played, were, they were doing The Lamb and they were playing a big venue. Uh, that was, yeah, yeah, okay. that was a but you saw the musical box at Royal Albert Hall, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think Steve played... In, uh, for the fifth. Now, am I am I think right in thinking that the musical box have actually had more members of Genesis playing along with them than than almost members of yeah, Genesis? Well, now? well, I mean, Phil guested with them on the musical box on the Lamb tour um, at one point. I think when they played in Switzerland, and Steve has played with them a new, numerous times, usually on their encores. Like he played yeah, most recently, I think he played Watcher of the Skies with them. Um, and I think it's it's great that the that the members talk of have you know kind of embraced this this tribute to the music that they created. And I know that <laughs> there was an interview that I read with Peter Gabriel where he talked about going to see the musical box, and I think he went with one of his daughters. Oh yes, I remember. And and it was great because he said that he was sitting there. And he was actually really surprised. I think he sounded surprised that he was actually kind of getting into it. And he was like, oh, yeah, like, I remember doing this. And, he, and at some point in the middle of the show, one of his daughters leaned over to him and said, you really used to do that? <laughs> and, yeah. and he said it just kind of took the air out of him. Like, like kind of like, oh, this is how an outsider looks at this who wasn't kind of connected with Should the music. But yeah. I, think that speaks, I think that speaks to context and uh, the very fact that I have no sense of context of that time, really. Right. I mean, okay, I was alive during the seventies, but you know, I was I was yeah. kicking We're a ball about a football field and, yeah. and you know in loom pants, and that was you know that was my uh, right. that was my job. Me, yeah. But I, I guarantee there isn't a Genesis fan out there who who loves the music that wouldn't immediately leap in a time machine if one existed and go back and see them. And right. uh, because this, I'd want to see the band play that, yeah. not necessarily see. A bunch of other musicians but this like is the, the closest generation. that we're gonna get True, you know? exactly so yes and i think that's why for me the kind of the peak of attending tribute band shows and going to cover bands doing genesis was between 92 and 2007 when genesis last went on tour and when they toured again in 2007 so around like late 90s early 2000s i was of the thinking that I might not ever see Genesis play again. So this was going to be the closest I would get. So I went to all the shows in LA with Gavel Ratchet and, right. you know, became friends with them. I saw a musical box. How do, big was the production with Gavel Ratchet? You no, know, it's just the them on stage playing, playing, you know, the songs of Genesis, but going back through everything, back through the knife, up through probably even turn on again, some stuff from Duke. Uh, I was lucky one night, somehow Gavel Ratchet and Cinema Show, or maybe it was Cinema Show and Supernatural Anesthetist, 
they were booked back to back on the same night at the same bar. <laughs> so you got almost over three hours of Genesis wow. music. And at the time I did bring a girl I was dating and I can't believe she sat through the whole thing. <laughs> She's not here anymore. <laughs> but but yes, that, that late 90s, early 2000s, I would go see these bands because who knew when we were going to get the real band playing again. So after 2007 hit and I saw them, yeah. saw the band, then the luster of the going to see band. the tribute band kind of wore down a little bit. So I, I've seen some have played in New York City and I said, if I'm not doing anything, I'll go yeah. check them out. I said, tonight going to see the musical box i've seen them do the black show a couple of times i probably would not have gone to seen it but go to see it but i love the fact that simon hasn't been before and we get to go and hang out and go see a show and if they ever came back and did another tour of i don't know maybe they go back and do a nursery crime tour or something that i haven't seen i would definitely go see it again but i feel like i've seen selling england i've seen them do the lamb i've seen them sure. do the trick of the tail tour which is great and i might even go see that again because i only saw that once one of the things that has really hit home with regards to the interviews is exactly how every single person that we've spoken to has created a different take mm-hmm. on music, which is effectively supposed to be faithfully reproduced if you're right. in a tribute act. Right. But there is something unique about... It doesn't matter how hard you try... Mm-hmm. Something will always of yourself sneak in, yeah. and I I would lo- I've not had a chance to see Adam and his uh, and Angelo. Angelo's Genesis Piano Project yet, but I like the idea of oh this is a different arrangement, this is a different approach to this music. I would lo- my, I've always joked that I would like to see tribute bands that take the more the later period of Genesis and arrange it like it was older Genesis. But I know if people are looking for, I want to see what Genesis was like back in the day, they're not going to be going for that. Well, so. I think if they, if a band, just a regular tribute band, did that, that might that might take a little bit of the pressure off themselves. Because if they're doing their kind of spin-off, their version of it, they're not doing an exact recreation, which the audience knows by heart. Right. So it's a lot of pressure because yeah. you hit one wrong note, mm-hmm. you're going to have 100, 200 people going, ah, yeah. Just, well, you only have to look at the uh, um, uh, dub side of the moon, for example, mm. the reggae version of, of, yeah. of the Floyd classic. A lot of people absolutely love that. Maybe, maybe the time is ripe <laughs> for a reggae <laughs> reggae <laughs> genesis. I like actually back in the day, I I had an interview, email interview with David Myers, who had played with Musical Box and has done a number of piano albums with uh, his arrangement of Genesis for piano. And I think he said when talking about the musical box shows was that a perfect show for them is where they mimic the album precisely. And they say they never do it 100%, but that's their goal is to replicate the album version of things, of the, of the arrangements. And I thought that was interesting because I think that is, you know, as Tom was saying, that's chasing the arrangement. That's trying to kind of measure yourself up against that album version whereas even genesis i think is not necessarily trying to replicate the album when they played live back in the day or up to 2007 mm. yeah and even as i said you know growing up in argentina and you know genesis hadn't toured there only in brazil i think in 77 and this band rail they were amazing and we were all thankful to them because mm-hmm. this was the our only chance you know to sure. experience that I think that's where tribute bands really do serve a purpose because you know if you're in Argentina, when when are you going to see Genesis? You know, I still rank with, in other words, the like the fan appreciation and all coming together to hear this band that you know you might not ever see. 
in 97, the first time I saw Musical Box, I rank in the top five shows that I've ever seen. Really? And it wasn't because they actually, you know, particularly did anything special about that presentation mm -hmm. of Selling by the Pound Tour. It was because I didn't know a soul who knew anything beyond Invisible Touch. I didn't know anyone else knew of Nursery Crime at that point. I was 26, maybe. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone who knew Supper's Ready. I didn't know anybody who knew Peter Gabriel's in Genesis. Mm -hmm. So going to Irving Plaza in New York City, I got there early. It was a general admission show. I was right up front with some other guy. We're talking, oh, you love Genesis. I love Genesis. And then when they came on, you could just hear the roar of the crowd behind you. And they had the crowd for the entire night. It was just mm -hmm. a wave of cheers and applause the mm -hmm. entire night. And it was like it was like heaven for someone who thought they were the only ones who loved this band. Yeah. So long. Yeah, I yes. found my people. <laughs> That's great. I I'm I'm really happy about this because I think that the the music deserves to live on in a live environment. And I think that's yeah. where, you know, even even Genesis themselves, the members I think would talk about, you know, how the music had a different edge live than it had necessarily on album, especially with the earlier tracks. So I think that the way that these bands can keep this alive for people is fantastic. When I saw them do the Lamb Show for the first time, again, I was kind of sitting back, you know, arms crossed, like, I'm enjoying this, this is okay. And then, you know, about three quarters of the way in, you know, middle of side three, I'm like... I'm buying into this. Like, this is how the, again, the show's actually working. <laughs> so it's probably more so than even Genesis back in the day. But I was like, this is a really solid show here. And and when it gets the light dies down on Broadway, you know, hey, John. And I'm like, yeah. There was one other thing which I thought was, and it, it only struck me this morning when we were, I was setting up for the uh, the recording today, was that all four, of the interviews that we did involved keyboard players. Sure, okay. Uh, admittedly, apart from, obviously, Mike as well, but he, he can play some keyboards as well. Um, and I wonder why that, you know, why that was. I, I, that didn't strike me as too, as a coincidence. I can tell you right. available. <laughs> well, no, to be really honest with you, this is the thing. I, is I, It's nearly always the keyboard player who sits at the core of these bands. Oh, sure. Well, and I, I think that speaks to all because... You know, we all say, you know, the members of Genesis all had successful solo careers except Tony Banks. And then we all say, well, that's because Tony Banks' solo project was Genesis. And, it, and I mean, his his yeah. writing is so core to what Genesis was, especially back in the early days when it was a little less, I don't want to say less collaborative, but it wasn't just all from jamming. That, you know, Tony had hundreds of ideas that he was able to bring out there. And so, you know, Genesis is a is a keyboard-based band. We've obviously only have just touched the tip of the tribute band iceberg out here. Uh, we This is not meant to be an inclusive summary of all tribute bands or interviews with people. If you're involved in a tribute band and want to reach out to us, we'd be happy to talk to you at some point. I'm sure that there's plenty of bands out there that we can talk to again or talk about. And so reach out to us, talk, find us on Facebook, Twitter, at our email address. Plus, you know, if you want to share your thoughts about going to see Tribute yeah. Ads, we'd love to hear from you. Right, you've had our slices of experiences with that. And if you have anything you'd like to share, we're happy to hear from our audience. So reach out to us. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed these interviews from the different Tribute Ads out there, from the different Tribute members I all should say all around the world this is the you know, yes international international indeed so so this is Mike signing off this is Ellie 
This is Simon. This is Stacy. <laughs> and this is Tom. And thank you very much for listening. We've had a lot of fun talking about this, so we hope you enjoyed it also. See you next time. episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have the shows automatically and magically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis. And you can also email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. 